0: I think we have a choice. Unlike the tiger in Africa that can hunt and eat an animal, we have a choice. And our choices of how we've consumed our food and the decisions we've made of what we want rather than what our world needs have led us to the point where we see endless rain and endless drought and rising seas, and war and chaos around the world. Caloric intake is the primer to war. And we feed 90 billion animals so that we can feed 7 billion humans. It doesn't make sense to me that we, are, we do the decisions we make and how we go about uh, caring for humans by not caring for other species.
1: Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belize. Every week, I invite you on a journey to care more so that we can create a better world together. Many of you have been watching the news and hearing about the devastation that we're experiencing here on the central coast of California. We've been pummeled by back to back atmospheric rivers, a new term that I hadn't heard, a bomb cyclone that struck Capitola, placing much of that community underwater. Mudslides abound, sinkholes have appeared, school closures have been in effect, homes have been destroyed, and businesses are too. So today I'm going to share some of that personal experience and that of a dear friend as I introduce you to Helbard Alcaseda. Helbard and his wife Camilla founded a sanctuary on the central coast to provide forever homes to animals that would otherwise be destined for slaughter for the plate. Their not for profit is called Little Hill Sanctuary, and it's home to dozens of chickens and roosters, some of whom were rescued from cockfighting rings, a few turkey, pigs, sheep, goats, and also a few cats, dogs, and their human caretakers. Their slogan is friends, not food. Helbart, welcome to the show.
0: Hello, how are you?
1: <laughs> I'm good. I'm dry. I'm not flooded. I don't have a landslide on my property. So things are pretty darn good.
0: Yeah, I'm on dry land right now, too. So it's, it's not that bad uh, over here where I'm at. Uh, luckily, we have an office next to the barn and uh, it's on the hill. We're called Little Hill and it's on top of the hill. So it's the barn's about 53 years old. So it's lasted through a lot of weather, but it's muddy outside, but I'm dry inside right now.
1: Well, I saw some local coverage where you were interviewed on what's going on at the Sanctuary and a new initiative you're undertaking because of challenges that you face. But before we really dive into all of that, as a first order of business, I would like for you to talk about why you got this thing started in the first place. What is Little Hill Sanctuary all about?
0: Originally, when we moved to this land here in Royal Oaks, California, we had not planned to do anything like this. There was no future planning of how we were going to lay everything out on the property and if we were going to have animals or we didn't even have a dog at that point. There were, It was just Camilla and I. And we just happened to be driving through town one day and there was a yard sale that was happening down the road from here. And I have been a photographer for many years and I noticed that I immediately, my eyes caught some uh, vintage cameras that were sitting out on a table. So I pulled in and ran up and started looking at the cameras. And while I was looking at the cameras, a lamb ran up to me. And this ram could not have been more than three or four weeks. So I started petting this ram. And I asked the people that were having this yard sale, what's the story with this lamb? And they said, oh, well, he's going to be dinner on Tuesday. And this was a Sunday and me being vegan at the time was like, wow, that's pretty depressing. And it kind of messed with me and Camilla and I got back in the car and we're driving off and I look over at her and I go, I can't, I got to go back. And she goes, yeah, we can't just leave that ram there. So (laughs) we headed back and we came back with this month old lamb and his name is Lambert. And (laughs) of course he just hung out with us on the property and i would call out for him and he would run up to me and i started i built him a little pan area and we just watched this little guy start growing and next thing you know we went to get some feed for him and next thing we know we see some some hens at the feed store that didn't look like they were in a very good place they were crammed in this small cage and we got them and we brought them. And next thing you know, there was a sheep and then some goats. And, <laughs> and all of a sudden I had all this cost on my hands to care for these animals. And I was paying out of pocket for it and prices kept going up and we kept rescuing more animals. And I went to Camilla one day and I said, can you ask for donations? Because I think we're doing all this stuff, but I'm not exactly sure what the plan is for this whole thing, like where we're going (laughs) with this. We ended up making it a nonprofit, giving it a name. And here we are. We not-for-profit sanctuary with about 100 animals. We've been around for about eight years. And it's been pretty interesting, to say the least. And the amazing thing is that we didn't have an idea of what sanctuaries, especially California sanctuaries, are about. And once we realized what we were going through, and how much work it was to care for animals, we started reaching out to other sanctuaries. And now we have this amazing network of sanctuaries that we work with, and we're all connected. So we went from rescuing this one lamb to now rescuing hundreds of uh, animals every year, and being connected with all these other sanctuaries around the state and the country, and making it Much easier for animals that need rescue to go from a place where they're in danger to a place where they can live the rest of their lives in peace and safety and make it as seamless as possible.
1: Well, here in California, we've had a couple of challenges to contend with over the last few years, going from very, very dry, meaning in some cases it was harder to get hay or the hay would be a lot more expensive, to getting all of your water at once like we've been experiencing now to a couple years ago, fires that resulted in evacuations. And then you have people with their home farms where they might have chickens and goats and other things living in the mountains of Santa Cruz County saying, I need to get my animals somewhere. We have to escape right now. And so some of the things that you're that you do and that I know you're connected with when you're trying to handle these situations, it's like everything becomes an 11th hour fire. So where are you right now? How can people help? And what's the path forward for you?
0: Yeah, the 2020 fires were an eye opener for us, because not only was our power shut off for a good period of time in the summer, which is something we hadn't experienced before, because power outages here were more of a winter thing,
1: Right. That was every time the wind blew, right? Like. Yeah, we, we've
0: had power outages for six days straight. We had gotten ourselves prepared for that. But then when it started happening in the summer, it was a whole different thing. Because like most sanctuaries, our water comes from wells and wells run on electricity. And when the power goes out in the winter, we collect water, rainwater. We've been actually doing that through this atmospheric rivers. But when the power goes out in the summer, you have to, several times a day, make sure the animals have enough water. And so we had to change how we were functioning throughout the year. Hmm. So we've been in this very aggressively moving towards solar. We've been slowly accumulating our solar infrastructure which we're hoping will go live within the next couple of months. So the entire sanctuary is going to be off-grid and run solar. Uh, So we won't be relying on Pacific gas and electric services, and we can care for our own animals with our own power source. We also realize that a lot of people in a lot of other sanctuaries are in situations and in environments that whether it's a fire or a flood are in a much worse situation than we are when something happens. For example, during the 2020 fires, we rescued about 400 animals in about two weeks time and all the other animals got returned to their owners or to the, to their homes. But it's been something that we are constantly trying to keep up with because last year we had this terrible flood the day after Christmas that ruined a bunch of our tools, wrecked a bunch of our feed, wrecked a bunch of our property, almost killed our horses. It was just this awful flood. And we managed to like save the animals at two in the morning in the dark and started rebuilding. And then this happens this year. And it was like 10 of those in a row. And we're realizing something's not the same. Mm -hmm. There's something changing. And we all talk about it, we know it's happening, and we think it's going to be our grandkids' problem, that we're realizing it may be our problem to the extent that if we don't do something about it now, our grandkids won't be around to deal with it. So it is our problem, it's this generation's issue, it's we have to do something now, because there's so much patching and duct taping and trying to repair, and jerry-rig things you can do until you just have to give up. And we're at the point where we don't even think that it's realistic to have an animal sanctuary and rescue in this part of California because where are we gonna go? Where is it safe now? Where is it realistic in the central coast if this is gonna happen every year for two or three months a year?
1: Wow. That's the bleak side of things, isn't it? I know that the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, has declared a state of emergency. I wondered if that had resulted in any funds or support being available to you at all at this point. Is that still something you're working to reveal?
0: There's an odd disconnect with the government and farms. So what happens is that this happened during COVID and it's happened in the past during the fires and with the floods. When a farm requests funding for whether it's repairing their soil or any kind of damage, they get that funding and there's organizations, whether they're government organizations or non-government organizations, they get funded and things move forward. But as we learned during COVID, we're not in the same level as these farms because we don't kill our animals. mm If the animals are here living, getting old, and not being slaughtered, then they are not a part of the economy. So because they're not a part of the economy, government doesn't want to either subsidize or help the organization.
1: Does that change with FEMA, given that federal level is now available?
0: FEMA really has nothing to do with what we do. They're not a part. They don't care. (laughs) So (laughs) it's not a FEMA thing. If it was me as a person, as a human, and my home had a tree fall on it, there are endless services for me. But if a tree falls on one of our animal shelters, there's no services for that because they're not animals that are going to be put into the market as food. So they... We don't get that kind of service from the government because we're on our own. We either get donations from people that support us or that's it. California is not going to step in and say, oh, we want to make sure your animals are are safe. They're going to go to Turlock or Modesto and make sure that the chicken farms and the cattle farms are doing well so that it's an economical move, not a move to care for any, any person or animal.
1: Now, you mentioned you had passed through or helped save over 400 animals back in the 2020 fires. Talk to us about what that looks like, because I want the people to understand what the kind of services are that you have had to provide or that you are providing in times when the strife comes up. Usually,
0: the normal process is we either get a call and we get contacted. Somebody says there's an animal that's in danger, and we go and we find out if they actually are in danger. We want to make sure that actually it's not just somebody that shouldn't have an animal under their care, it's this animal is actually in danger, or it's an animal that has escaped a slaughter situation, or it's an animal that somebody has removed from a bad situation and just needs them housed somewhere. That's usually the process. They fill out forms. They surrender the animal. We either bring them directly here or we have them brought to another sanctuary or rescue. But when a, when when a wildfire happens and there's evacuations and there's a sanctuary with, let's say, 250 rescues, there's really no time and there's no realistic way of getting everyone into an arc and moving them off the property. It's chaos. It's everyone getting their trailers over there, trying to round up as many animals as possible. Here we have pigs that are 750, 850 pounds that have never been on any hard ground they've always been on soil grass and mud since they were little babies so trying to get them into a trailer is impossible because they're like what are you doing i'm not going to go into that thing
1: well it's frightening it's a frightening thing for them
0: it's frightening
1: yeah even with horses they have to be trained they have to be trained
0: to get into a trailer.
1: That's exactly right. I had a trailer that was too small for my thoroughbred horse at one point. It was a straight load, but it seemed too small. And so the horse refused to go in to the point where they reared up and ended up injuring themselves coming down on the lip of the trailer and resulting thousand dollars and vet bills on the heels of it. Imagine that
0: happening, multiply it by a couple of hundred with fire and smoke coming at you and complete chaos and dozens of people that these animals have never seen before running around with crates. We realized that it's really unrealistic to say, we have a plan to get out. There is no plan. There is really, there's no plan. So when we were rescuing those animals, Camilla was driving into the fire zone, loading up turkeys and chickens and driving back and going back. And people were coming up and just putting in carts with names and tags on them. And we were just trying to organize it. It was chaotic. It was very stressful for the animals. It was unfair for everyone. And all I can tell you is during an emergency situation, no matter what you see on TV or how the news is, is trying to process it to people, it's a million times worse than you can imagine.
1: Well, and let's just say those people that were closer to the ridge when the CZU fire complex hit and it was quite sudden and it was unpredictable for a little bit and then winds hit and suddenly sent the fires leaping over roadways and things like that. I had a friend who had a flock of chickens on the ridge and had no time, to your point, to be able to get them out. So just made the choice to release them all and hope that they'd be able to survive the fire, understanding that these are chickens that had just been hand-cared for since they were itty-bitty, but it was their only option. She couldn't fit them all in the car with their few belongings, their dog, their kid, their precious belongings. That was just it. And so sadly, people have to make those choices. In the case of horse evacuations, often you're forced to prioritize, which animals am I going to save today? I've got 16 to get out. I have a four-horse trailer. I mean, do the math, you may be able to leave once and you hope you can come back and get more, but you don't know if you'll be able to. And it might be the easy loaders, they get in because you can get them out quick. And so for anybody who has a horse, and if you haven't done a lot of training with regard to helping them load and unload from a trailer, it is a vital use of your time. I know it's a lot of work. I've personally done it. Um, (laughs) And sometimes having a trailer with one of those Sweeping gates that can open to make it look more spacious can be helpful too. But often, because people understand how severe this can be, a friend with a trailer will help. I mean, you just have to ask. Get some support. It can help develop your, to your point, plan. I mean, heck, good intentions and plans can go the way the don't open. Suddenly a fire erupts, but at least you can be a little bit more prepared.
0: Right, right. Yeah, you have to be somewhat prepared. It's difficult to be completely ready and I thought we were ready this year. I really thought for the water, for the mud, I thought we were ready. I did everything I could with the equipment we have. I was on a tractor for hours on end, and I made sure that everything was ready. And when the rain came, that first heavy rain came, I went out in the middle of the night, checked on everyone, and everything was perfect. Everything was moving. The water was moving the right direction. Everyone was in their barns and shelters and everything was great. And then the next rain came and then everything fell apart. It was no way of keeping up with the rain. And as we're talking right now, there's more rain coming. Right after I speak with you, I'm going to go out there and try to get some more prepared. But it's really exhausting. It's extremely exhausting. It's defeated and you feel uh, like there's no way of getting ahead of it. And I kind of see it in the eyes of the crews out there working on the wires and the Caltrans and all the folks out there trying to get everything fixed. You can tell the look in their faces like, this is all going to happen again in the next week. So like, when does this end? But it's pretty brutal right now. It's I think the last number I saw was just over $30 billion of damage just to California.
1: Yeah. And that's a very, very rough estimate. I will say, I think the only species that are really loving all of this is the mushrooms. I've been spending some time hiking around the neighborhood and I'm like, wow, I don't think I've ever seen that mushroom here before. They're everywhere. So (laughs) it is wet. I will just say for people listening, where we are in Northern California, you can associate it with redwoods, but we've had such intense drought for so long that it's just, the ground isn't even prepared to be able to take this in. And so a lot of it is going right down the drains. And you think, okay, great, we're going to have more water and the drought will be over, but we're not even in that situation yet. So what we get are really intense levels of rain all at once. The precipitation is that's a recent pattern. We get it all at once. And then our summers are desert like. We get almost no water between sometimes as early as March and as late as November. And so what does that do to your ability to? Grow food because <laughs> you need to borrow water. Hay prices are going up, which impacts you directly. I think what we've seen as far as water allocations for California and the growing of alfalfa, oat, and grass hay is something like 30% of what it really needs to be if we're going to be at full production. And so that one cutting or two cuttings missed throughout the summer, depending on where your base and what your water allocation was. So it just means that that problem is also going to worsen. So is there a plan at this point for what that worst case scenario is? Are you planning to relocate the farm? Is that even feasible?
0: Relocating is an option. It's definitely something we're looking at. Where to relocate is the, the real question because where is it not happening? We, we're, for, for a short time this last year, we were getting our feed, our bales from out of state Mm because california was no longer had no ran out
1: yeah oregon mostly right
0: yeah it was coming from all the way from utah at some point it was coming from everywhere and the price for a bale of grass has shot up to 31 dollars now it was 15 15 just a few years ago And like you said, those cuttings aren't happening anymore. So the number of cuttings aren't happening. So there's alpha and grass that they would get five, seven, eight cuttings from. They're getting three or four if they're lucky. This rain isn't going to change that because Shasta is still at, I think, 50-something percent. So there's still a lot of water that's needed to actually go into the aquifers. You go into the Central Valley, their aquifers have been pumped so hard that the clay is collapsing so the aquifers can't actually be, uh, get their full capacity like they had to so they have to drill wells deeper to get to that water uh, which causes so many other problems. Here in the Central Valley we're having uh, saltwater intrusion into wells. A couple of farmers just in our area Have left. We just lost the road from us, who has been extremely helpful with actually with feed, helping us get feed for the animals during the warmer months. He's gone. There's erosion happening on another farm up the hill from us that is, it looks like there's just canyons where they used to grow food. I mean, this is where human food and and animal food is coming from. Uh, Where do we go where we're going to be closer to? to have a price be lower and where is it where we're not seeing the effects of weather patterns changing i don't know i don't know where would be a logical place but it's one of those things where we have to think of uh now and start planning for but yeah and there have been certain sanctuaries in the past 18 months that have left california We had a very large sanctuary in California moved to New York, the state of New York. So they moved all of their animals and equipment to New York because it was more realistic for them to be able to care for their animals there than it is here, which is just bizarre.
1: It's mind-blowing. Yeah. It's just mind-blowing that California
0: is one step lower than New York State for animal care we well, you'd think California would be the best weather, you know, but it's not. Not anymore. <laughs> not anymore.
1: Well, I think those who have had experience being at a horse barn or a farm or a sanctuary like yours can understand and picture some of the challenges that you're talking about. I have been in and around these types of environments my whole life. You know, being somebody who's into horses, growing up on a commune and, and actually having animals that we used for food. In our case, we consumed them. It wasn't a vegan thing, but we had chickens, we had rabbits, we had horses, which we rode and they were the treat really more than anything for me. But generally speaking, you'd run into a challenge like, hey, it got too cold. I need to break the ice in the trough or all of a sudden all my pipes burst because they're above ground and they weren't insulated. And so now I have to replace all this PVC piping and there's last minute emergencies that come up constantly. Yeah. Yeah. But The fact of it is that we're likely to be hit with another system. I think there's one forecast for this weekend again. And so my heart is with you. I would like to know what the state is for animals right now. Is there a plan and how can we help?
0: After last year's weather, we went through rebuilding and building new shelters. So all of our animals have a winter shelter to be able to go to. So the horses are on higher higher land now in next to a, a shelter that we just got prepared for them about two months ago. So they were moved up there as soon as the rain started. The goats have a barn to go up to at higher ground. The pigs, no matter what I do, they wanna be in the mud. I can't get them out of the mud. <laughs> I can spend all day making their lives as easy and comfortable, they will figure out a way to just lay in the mud and lay in the rain.
1: So they're enjoying the storms is what you're saying? They have no idea what we're
0: talking about. They think this (laughs) is the best thing that's ever happened. So the pigs be pigs. The hens and everyone, the birds, the turkeys, they've all been moved into different areas or have a very, well, first of all, we were very concerned about the bird, the avian flu. Mm. The bird flu that was going through the entire country has killed hundreds of millions of animals that very few people are talking about. Avian flu has jumped species. It is now getting other species sick and it did get a few humans sick too. It wasn't an outbreak. It wasn't a pandemic. It was controlled, but we really needed to be careful because it was happening near closer to us.
1: Yeah, and wild birds could come into your property and they might have it and they just essentially bring it with their feces, right? So yeah, so we
0: covered all of our bird population and there was no way for them to be exposed to it. We had very strict rules on who goes into the bird closures, how boots were getting cleaned how hands were getting washed. So everything was really, really, we were really careful, but that also prepared us for rain. So the birds are all good. We did get some mud and some water into some bird areas, which we know we have to fix some things now that will do. The animals are safe. Everyone is in a safe place. They're comfortable, but it's not because everything is set and we can walk away. It's constant work to keep them safe. They're not in their normal areas. So it causes some confusion and stress to the animals, which everyone knows any kind of stress or confusion creates an immune system issue, which causes illness. And we were trying to avoid that as much as possible. But we're also constantly moving hay around, moving straw around, moving wood shavings around, trying to get We have tons of gravel being delivered to us all the time and base rock. We're trying to keep the pathways to the animals as accessible as possible. Right now, any kind of hill, a tractor will slide down off of it. Any kind of flat area, a tractor will sink into it. No matter what we've done, nature's winning that round. So we're basically just trying to keep the animals as comfortable and stress-free and safe as possible. It's taking a lot of work, but how much we can do this and how long we can do this, it really is unpredictable. It really is unpredictable because I'm hoping in a couple of weeks, things will start mellowing out and things will dry out and it'll just give us, we just need about not these one day breaks that we've been getting every four or five days. We need a week. We need a full week of just everything just drying out, puddles going away. So we can move equipment around and fix things. And that's very important, that we need at least five or seven days.
1: Those who follow me on TikTok or Instagram have seen some of the footage locally where I am just showing sheets of water when we have a break in the rain, still coming down off of hillsides, storm drains that are completely full to the point where the water is just continuing down. I personally have uncogged some of the storm drains because they just got littered with debris and we were getting essentially lakes in some of the neighborhoods. So, I mean, this has been a real eye-opening period for me personally, too. And I just learned today that a sinkhole erupted on Glenwood Drive, which is up the road where I used to keep my horses. So you don't know where the next challenge is going to come from. And to your point about the tractors, this means you can't be using heavy equipment in a time like this, even though it might be immensely helpful. So you're doing all of this by hand.
0: Yeah. And by hand, meaning you can't even use a hand truck. Wheels- sink into anything out here right now a bale of mix is you know 70 to 100 pounds
1: well especially if it has any water intrusion right
0: (laughs) right right we've been really good with making sure our feed is dry but it's heavy 50 pound bags of uh, feed it's not a big deal unless you have to carry them for a very long path and in the mud and the mud here is now at best it's like four or five inches. In a lot of spots we're going at least a foot of mud that we have to walk through with with feed.
1: So you have to wear waders, not just boots, it sounds like.
0: Yes, we have I have the full I have my Halloween costume set for next year. So <laughs> I'm all ready to go.
1: <laughs> oh dear, the times we live in. I know. <laughs> well, as we prepare to wrap. I'm going to share a couple of things. One, I did start a fundraiser on Facebook for your sanctuary. Now it's shared on my personal page, but also on the Care More Be Better page. And so anybody who visits my page can choose to make a small donation. If they are recurring, you're actually getting matching funds from a generous donor. And so I set up a recurring donation of a 25 bucks a month, but hopefully I can keep that up and keep contributing. I'm also asking for anybody from the community who's able to do so to please consider doing it. You can also start your own Facebook fundraisers if this is something that you're passionate about. And the benefit of doing that is simple. A Facebook fundraiser, they cover the 3% charges that would otherwise be taken away from Halbard and Little Hell Sanctuary. So the money that you put forward can all go to work as opposed to just part of it. And sometimes that 3% makes a difference. Secondly, I want to say something about animal welfare in general. And this is really coming to people who are considering getting another animal in your own life. Please adopt or rescue before you go to a pet store, no matter what you're looking at. I have seen at our local shelter, anything from guinea pigs to rabbits to gosh, even baby goats. (laughs) So lizards of all different sorts. We have adopted a bearded dragon, three guinea pigs. My dog is a rescue. My horse was a rescue. So again, just think about providing that forever home to an animal in need. I just think it's the best way to do things. We don't need to go out there and get the purebred animal. There are plenty of animals that need homes. So I'm going to step off my soapbox and ask you if you'd like to leave our audience with any closing thoughts.
0: Yes. My job would be a lot easier. What we do would be a lot easier if people that eat food, which is most people I know.
1: Unless you're a breatharian, right?
0: Yes. Yes. Well, yeah, we know the story behind that. If you spend some time, because we're never taught this as children, if you spend some time where and how your food is brought to you, go to farms. There's a lot of farms that are open to the public. They have days where they open their farms during the the summer and fall months to have people go and visit. Everyone lives within 10 minutes or an hour of a farm. You can go see a farm and see what's going on. And as a vegan, I uh, suggest people go to slaughterhouses. People go visit where chickens are raised for for, uh, food and to experience that also because I know that makes a huge difference in in how people eat. And then teach younger people and your children what you see and what you experience. I think my experience of rescuing animals, most of them that were going to be consumed by humans, has changed the way not only of how I act with animals, but it also changes the way of how I interact with people. I think we have a choice. Unlike the tiger in Africa that can hunt and eat an animal, we have a choice. And our choices of how we've consumed our food and the decisions we've made of what we want rather than what our world needs have led us to the point where we see endless rain and endless drought and rising seas. and war and chaos around the world caloric intake is the primer to war and we feed 90 billion animals so that we can feed 7 billion humans it doesn't make sense to me that we are we do the decisions we make and how we go about uh, caring for humans by not caring for other species So just learn where your food comes from. I was just recently speaking to somebody who didn't know a lamb was a baby sheep. And to me, an adult with a family, not knowing that a lamb is what we call a baby sheep, they just thought it was a different species, an adult species, just tells me how we've been raised and how we've been educated about food. Educate yourself about food, know where things come from, know what ingredients are, Uh, Because it makes a big difference. It makes a huge difference for everyone.
1: Well, hear, hear. I have to say I 100% agree with you. And listeners of this show, if you heard last week's episode with David Moscow, he talks about the fact that he has had to dispatch numerous animals. I know you might use a different word for that. and In his travels as he has produced a show from scratch and also written the book from scratch. And it has dramatically decreased his consumption of meat products as a result. And he says he thinks about it now, every time before he's going to eat a meal, and that mostly his plates these days are comprised of vegetation, vegetables, and mostly vegan. And so even if most people would consider making some shifts by getting more closely connected to food, it could have a dramatic impact. There's another of my favorite authors, Jonathan Safran Foer. He is a vegan author. He wrote Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. Some other books that have become film adaptations as well. And he has um, written a book called Eating Animals, as well as another about saving the climate. And I'm forgetting the title of it now. But he wrote an essay that's included in Paul Hawkins' Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation. And in that essay says, if you can just go vegan before dinner, like no animal products before dinner, that it would ultimately make a huge difference. And the number of animals that are consumed, that are farmed for our climate, for our health, that all of these things can come together. And there is a health reason for doing this as well. So if that isn't enough to convince you, then think about this. The fact is that when you consume more meats, you produce more advanced glycation end products, which age you prematurely and which can actually impact your health in a very negative way with time. And so I know there are movements out there like the carnivore movement, among other things. I don't even want to Touch them with a 10 foot pole. Just understand that there's a lot of science behind eating mostly plants and getting your nutrition from plants can be an incredible way to support your health and vitality long term. So I'll step off that soapbox now. (laughs) Helvard, it's such a joy to have the opportunity to finally tell your story. I've wanted to do this for some time and I'm sorry that it had to be under such extreme conditions, so to speak.
0: No, it's fantastic being able to talk to you and letting people know what's going on out here. And they can help. They can support us. Whether you want to support us with uh, volunteering, you can go to our website, littlehillsanctuary.org, and, and sign up to be a volunteer. Or you can uh, donate funds. If you don't want to take the risk of donating funds, we have a wish list. So you can buy specific things for our uh, rescues that that help us every single day. So yes, it was great.
1: And you can sponsor a specific animal from what I saw, right?
0: Yes, yes. You can sponsor. <laughs> you can, Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciated talking to you.
1: I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Halbard. As a closing reminder, the website for Little Hill Sanctuary is simply littlehillsanctuary.org. You can also find them on Instagram and on Facebook at Little Hill Sanctuary. I will be sure to include links to every website and what we talked about today in show notes, including that video feature where Hellbard was actually featured in the news. Remember when you donate on Facebook that they do cover the fees and they make it very simple to start your own campaigns. So whether it be a charity like Little Hill Sanctuary or another that's local to your community, you can go ahead and do that to support charities that you really care about from donating your birthday to just stepping up in a time of need. I have started a Be Better Challenge, and so every Monday on our social platforms, we are featuring a specific topic. The first of the year was really talking about getting outside, appreciating nature. And the second was about community. And for community, I chose to support Little Hill Sanctuary. So stay tuned each Monday for that on social platforms. I hope that you'll engage and think about the things that you can do each week to care a little bit more so that we can all be better. Thank you listeners now and always for being a part of this pod and this community because together we really can do so much more. We can care more, we can be better, we can even create stronger communities and protect a whole heck of a lot of animals out there. Thank you. Thanks for listening to
0: Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts and share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good.